You are listening to National Security Law Today. Article 2 of the Constitution states that the President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. But George Washington was himself a general and commander in battle against the British. General Flynn, General Mattis, McMasters, Kelly, and others who have cycled through our current administration all had considerable military and battle experience. So tonight, we're going to look at the relationship between Trump and his generals with the man who wrote the book on the topic, Peter Bergen, author of Trump and His Generals. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole. I'm Elisa. And I'm Yvette. Peter, thanks for being here. Thanks for the invitation. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, Peter, you tell the story of the generals who work for President Trump. Uh, I say worked because they mostly don't work for Trump anymore. Right. Uh, I mean, is that a question? (laughs) (laughs) It's It's a statement. But you do, you do. Um, uh, Imagine talk someone's about... been frozen, <laughs> and they've just been right. thawed. Right. Yeah, but you do, you know, talk about um, in the book variously Trump's fascination with yeah. and, and being really impressed by generals and yeah. wanting to surround himself with generals, especially at the beginning of his pre- presidency. Yeah, and then kind of really evolving over time to, you know, dismissing them, firing them, yeah. um, doing other other. So he came into office, you know, he's the first American president in history who hadn't served at public office or served in the military. So he knew nothing about many of these important subjects. And a hundred of the, you know, in any normal administration, you'd have, there were 700 people working for the Hillary campaign, all of whom were measuring the drapes for their respective offices at State Department, (laughs) Defense, etc. And they would have just gone in, like the whole thing would have been staffed immediately, right, pretty much. And so in this case, all all that group of people had signed these never-Trump letters. And so the active-duty military would never sign a never-Trump letter for obvious reasons. Um, And most retired military wouldn't. And and so so the universe of people to select, A, became smaller, B, you know, the group of people that he selected, Mattis, McMaster, you know, Kelly, you know, pretty impressive people. And they'd all, you know, Mattis had run Central Command, Kelly had run Southern Command, McMaster had served, you know, heroically both in the Gulf War, the Iraq War, and also served in Afghanistan. They knew how things worked. And they knew, uh, you know, Kelly, had. It's, uh, it's not in the book, but, I, you know, importantly, he, like he'd served as the Marine Corps liaison on Capitol Hill, which is a really, you know, that's the most effective branch of the military in terms of, like, lobbying Capitol Hill. So this is, he really knew, they all knew how things worked. And obviously, Central Commander Mattis, you know, that's a super important job. So, you know, it's not surprising that Trump sort of selected these people. What's interesting to me is that Trump had never met, they went to the job interview, they'd never met Trump. John Kelly has said not only did he never, he'd never met Trump, he didn't know anybody who knew Trump. He's like creatures from another planet, totally different ecosystems. Um, but there's also, you know, the fact that the military, the U.S. military, is consistently one of the most trusted and most yeah. highly regarded institutions in the U.S. government. And yeah. that probably also helped to lend some gravitas to this inexperienced president. Yeah, and the reason that it's the most trusted, I think, apart, you know, A, there's a pretty high level of competence, but B, it's apolitical. And I think that's a very important point. And in fact, one of the, uh, you know, what, what's interesting, you write a book and then you have to interpret it. And I, I, I wish I'd like had these conversations when I write the book because I would have written a much smarter book. But 
You know, you remember, you're too old to remember Admiral Crow endorsing Bill Clinton. You're too young to remember this. I, think. I was about to say, <laughs> sir. <laughs> you're, 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 you're too young to remember this, right? Right. It's a long time ago. Ancient. But like, you know, this was a big deal. So like a four-star retired endorsed Bill Clinton, um, you know, that. But now this is kind of routine, right, where you have like hundreds of. And, and I, you know, I think in the, in the military, if you're a veteran, is like the higher up in the rank, you know, it's one thing for one star retired, like obscure to endorse. But like once you get to the four star level, I think is so there's been this kind of slight erosion, I think not un- unimportant. It's in the, in, in the book where the you know, military has, for one reason or another, maybe like the country itself become more polarized and more politicized. Um, you know, and it got Admiral McRaven taking a very strong position against President Trump and General McChrystal um, and Mike Flynn taking very, you know, campaigning for him. And so this is kind of, we're in a kind of slightly new era. And it's like potentially, by the way, what happens if Elizabeth Warren wins the election? And you have, because Jim Mattis, one of the themes of the book is how he slow rolled things and didn't do what Trump ordered him to do, which in his own mind, he was kind of protecting the country. But like, do you really want a commander in chief who, you know, order something and people just slow roll it and don't do it and you know for I mean that's a problem so I'm not I'm not I'm not this is not a criticism of Mattis or anybody I'm just saying this is kind of a little different situation where uh, because why I think the reason the military has this high approval rating is because it's seen as this kind of very independent not apolitical institution absolutely and that is one of the Republican arguments against the deep state in quotation marks right in that this is the duly elected president of the United States. He has the right to surround himself with the people that he chooses and to implement the policies that he wants, even if there are really strong disagreements from people who are lawyers or, you know, senior policy officials. And he is right. And he is right. Mm-hmm. And That's what the Constitution says. He, he is, he's, he's, entitled, he's entitled, look, as a commander-in-chief, he went, if he went to the Pentagon and said, everybody has to wear a Humpty Dumpty outfit today, people would have to do it. You know, just because he, but the, this is what, what's interesting. Another thing that I didn't have in the book is like the extent to which we have this unwritten constitution that we are only aware of when it, like, it's sort of infringed. And, 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 you know, Trump is, I think there is this unwritten constitution. You wouldn't, the president wasn't supposed to attack the FBI or the CIA or the Justice Department or pick your American, the media, call them any, all this stuff. Like, this is unusual. Um, so, yeah. And your book covers not strictly the relationship between Trump and his generals, but his management of national security matters that are not held or carried out by members of the military. Uh, And so could you talk for a moment about how people who are not veterans are not serving like Steve Bannon or Sebastian Gorka or John Bolton fit into the story? Well, Steve Bannon is a veteran, interestingly. He served in the Navy Navy for eight years. Yeah, and and, he's a super interesting guy and very well. So the 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 opening scene in the book is this amazing meeting on July 20th, 2017 in the tank, which is sort of the sacred space in the Pentagon. And basically, people, you know, basically Mattis and McMaster and Gary Cohn, the chief of the economic advisor, want to sort of tutor Trump about the world and why do we have 190,000 troops overseas and what are our trade arrangements? I mean, the whole thing is a total fiasco because instead of Trump taking away, these are all the sound reasons that 75 years of consensus for Republicans and Democrats have come to this consensus and this is in our interest. He actually thinks that you know, none of this is in our interest and we're being ripped off by our allies and all the things that we, we know. But so this meeting in the tank, you know, Steve Bannon um, yeah, it regards it as a terrific success because basically Trump says, yeah, the America first is my foreign policy. 
I do think our allies are ripping us off. I do think we should kind of withdraw from these so-called endless wars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so but his relationship with Bannon, you know, obviously blew up in the end. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful line about Washington, which is the, um, you know, what's the definition of a gaffe in Washington is telling the truth in public. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, Bannon gave this interview to, to some to this leftist journal, the American Prospect, saying there's no way, like, no one said how we can win a war against the North Koreans without millions of people dying, which is true, right? There is no really good military option. And that was the final kind of final straw. But yeah, the book, I mean, Trump and his generals was a title for the book. Obviously, it, it, as you say, it covers more than just the generals. It covers a little bit of Jeff Sessions. Uh, it covers a little bit of, um, you know, Tillerson. covers a little bit of... of uh, others who are not necessarily generals. But it is striking uh, that, you know, this is a first, I think not since Grant has so many generals served at, at high levels. And in fact, one of the anecdotes in the book is Dave Petraeus was being seriously considered for Secretary of State, uh, but got nixed by Mattis and uh, Kelly because they thought it was a serious problem that he shared classified information, which, I mean, I think, I think is true. I would say so. But uh, uh, tell us, what did you conclude about the national security impact of Trump's desire to take his own counsel over these people who had really had an entire career uh, learning to make decisions that are good? <laughs> well, Mattis's resignation letter is a good way of answering that because he very pointedly says, you know, I, I, can't, I came to all these conclusions having spent four decades, you know, kind of thinking about these issues. <laughs> so, you know, tr but Trump isn't wrong. I mean, Trump is a, you know, the fact that he has no experience doesn't mean that he doesn't necessarily have good instincts about certain things. And, uh, you know, he reflects the, the Obama and Trump, one of the themes of the book is the similarities on the question of ending endless wars. I mean, you, both of them saw themselves getting elected to get them, you know, get out of the Middle East. And both of them tried to do that in one way or another. But the Middle East keeps sucking you in. Um, it's a lot easier to, like, you know, it's easy to say you're going to get out. And then, you know, you see what happened to Obama at the end of 2011 in, in Iraq, or you see what, Obama, actually, what's fascinating now is Trump and Obama are in exactly the same place in Afghanistan. You know, Obama wanted to go to zero uh, or just embassy protection. And then he started doing, you know, like, you know, they started doing the math and they ended up with 8,500 troops. Well, that's exactly the number that Trump will have when he does this most recent drawdown. So there are more similarities and differences on the counterterrorism policy of these guys. A lot of similarities. And in fact, if Elizabeth Warren wins or Trump wins or whoever wins, there's going to be there's a lot of consensus about our counterterrorism policy and how to approach it, which is drones, special operations, special forces, and cyber warfare, uh, because, you know, it works. Well, <laughs> before anybody gets the, you know, the impression that this is kind of an attack job on President Trump, yeah. I think uh, you, you do go out of your way to try and present a balanced view. Yeah. You give Trump where you give Trump credit where you think that he's made the right call? He made the right call on Syria uh, and the chemical weapons use, sarin, nerve gas. It's not a, it's a very, it's a nerve, a nerve agent. In uh, April 2017, he made the right call on ISIS. I mean, he really, he speeded up the process. It was an Obama plan, but he sped, sped it up. He made the right call, I think, on China in terms of, there was a lot of wishful thinking about the Chinese. And, you know, I think they've taken a much more, Kind of, I mean, not, I, I'm leaving aside the trade war thing, but like China as a military peer competitor, I think they, the national defense strategy and the national security strategy, you know, but I think, you know, where did he get th the things that he got wrong are climate change. I mean, just it's kind of, it, it's like, what I don't understand is he could say, I don't believe in the science, but I do believe it's happening. And we could have, a, you know, 
we could have a big infrastructure to protect Palm Beach and Manhattan, places that are going to be underwater in 2050. At lower Manhattan, right, it's going to be very – in Palm Beach, a two-foot two rise sea level, it's very low-lying. And he hasn't said anything. And I, that's puzzling to me. And you note in the book that for many years um, the uh, the Pentagon assessed climate yes. change as a national security The Pentagon threat. is – like, look, Norfolk is going to be underwater. I mean, right? I mean, a, a major a major yeah. port. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Virginia Beach. These are another like where the seals are. are I mean, it. These so the Pentagon has to plan for this. They can't pretend. And also, like the future wars. I mean, there's a whole school of argument that Tom Friedman has presented that the Syrian civil war can be understood as a drought, as much as any. You know that 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 precipitated a lot of the kind of uprising. So, you know, certainly the Pentagon has long focused on this issue, Uh, and yeah, I think that he's got wrong. And one thing that I think the other thing's got wrong is. It, you know, I mean, the, the reason that all these guys left is they fundamentally, it wasn't just a, it, you know, he has a certain kind of way of dealing with the world in terms of his, you know, kind of persona, because it, at the end of the day, we're not electing a nice guy, we're electing, or a nice girl, or, or a person, or female, or whatever you want, you know, we, we're just trying to, we're trying to elect somebody who's going to be, you know, effective, and he is, you know, so... So Trump is not—he's not a nice guy, right? But that isn't—that's not really the issue. It's like, is he effective? And um, but they—they—they they, they began to, um, you know, on policy, on NATO, on Putin, on on allies. allies, on the Kurdish allies. I mean, this like the—it all began to add up. It began with a blockade gutter in uh, July 2017. I think it was the first time Tillerson and Mattis both sort of said, "This makes no sense." I mean. It, on Qatar, has a, Georgetown has a university campus there. Medill, MI, you know Carnegie Mellon. You know they have Al Jazeera, which you can disagree or agree with, but it's the freest TV station in the Middle East. Uh, they have the largest, ba- most important base outside the United States. Al U.S. military, Al mm-hmm. Um You know, eleven thousand American uh, servicemen and women are on the base. You know, so like it made no sense, but he just, uh, you know. So they, that's why they left. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I think it, it, these 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 policy issues really began to add up. Yeah, I think one thing that's important about your book and distinguishes it from so many others is that we do receive um, information sort of episodically now, and I feel like it's death by a thousand paper cuts. Mm. But it does consolidate everything, and I think that's important so that we don't lose context or, frankly, yeah. forget events that have occurred. Yeah, uh, because of the news cycle is yeah. it's like incoming fire. Um, yeah, it's super intense. I mean, you know, in a given week, uh, you can have stories that would have been seismic that, that just get forgotten, forget forgotten, because uh, there's so much news. It's exhausting if you're in the news business. Yes, I bet. Um, but let, let me pivot for just a second, because this is not your first book. And, you know, I've had the yeah. good fortune to read uh, your other books, which are, um, quite frankly, amazing. But um, you really distinguished yourself very early on as sort of an early clarion caller regarding al-Qaeda. Mm. Um, you've written Holy War, Inc., the Osama bin Laden, I know, which I remember distinctly because reading it once, I became so involved in the book, I rode a bus far further than I intended. Oh, well, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> yes, and unfortunately, uh, <laughs> it was not to a bad neighborhood. Um, you know, Manhunt and the Longest War. But I just want to remind our listeners um, um, that you were one of the first or the first Western journalist to go interview Osama bin Laden years, six years before the 9-11 attacks? Uh, I was in 97, so first TV interview, yeah. Yeah. Uh, How on earth did a guy like you end up sitting in a cave in Afghanistan with bin Laden in the 1990s when, quite frankly, I barely knew who the guy was? 
Yeah, I mean, I was living in New York when the Trade Center was attacked the first time, and the people who did that are all some of them had spent time in Afghanistan and I'd been I did a film about the Afghan refugees when I was in university so I'd spent time in Pakistan so I, I, I thought we should go and like see what's happening in Afghanistan and, uh, as a result of the first trade center attack in 93 and, and, and we found you know, a group of mostly Arabs who were planning you know, other attacks and then Bin Laden's name came up in 96 the State Department produced a thing saying he was a financier, Islam, financier of Islamic extremism. New York Times wrote a piece about him, Judy Miller and Jeff Kerf, in fact. I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe he's responsible for the Trade Center attack. Went to my bosses at CNN, an argument for good, boss, good bosses, uh, Pam Hill and uh, uh, John Lane, and they were like, oh, of course, they'd never heard of this guy. It's like, go and spend a lot of money. Some are very dangerous. Yeah, just go and do it. <laughs> <laughs> And they kind of, you know, so they, so it was really, uh, I mean, without them saying yes, I would never have been. And so Peter Arnett, the correspondent, myself, and Peter Juvenile, the camera, and we went there. We, we you know, sat down with Bin Laden. He, he was, uh, you know, he was a very serious guy. And uh, he said, you know, I'm declaring war on the United States. He explained why, which was all about our foreign policy. He didn't mention any kind of cultural issues, Hollywood or drug culture. You know, he just, it was all about our foreign policy. And, and uh, you know, that, and then we did add the interview, and no one paid any attention to it because, like, then the embassies blew up in Africa, 200 people dead. They blew up the USS Cole, 17 American sailors. And you know, then, then it became you know, clear he was very serious. But even then, you know, we didn't we, – we, it took 9-11 to really take it, take it seriously. And look, I do the thought experiment where it's an interesting question. Like, let's say it hadn't worked as well as it did for them and, like, 100 people died. I mean, would we be sitting around having this discussion? Because I, I think that Trump wouldn't have been elected if we weren't in this sort of war on terror – Mm-hmm. If, you go, if you go back to the election, I mean, ISIS killed 130 people in Paris. ISIS inspired, uh, you know, attackers killed 14 people in San Bernardino. They killed 40, an ISIS inspired attacker killed 49 people in Orlando. The Americans were really scared. I mean, it, it goes, it's a very news driven. The highest number of Americans since 9 11 was, was believed that they or their family member could be killed by a terrorist in that time period. And Trump was able to really exploit that. And he, um, you know, I quote Lewandowski, who was his campaign chairman in the book. They were determined they, that no one would outflank them on the right in the Republican Party on immigration. And by saying we're going to ban Muslim immigration, this was a really popular thing in the Republican Party. And it was actually popular, like half of Americans thought it was a good idea. Even and as a statistical matter, there was there were more ter- political violence in the United States between 1970 and 1985. Oh, yeah, I mean, off the there is now by much higher. Um, Puerto Ricans blew up 85 bombs. Puerto Rican nationalists. There were 100 hijackings in the 70s, which were many of them politicals. So it was the weather underground. Black Panther. I mean, it was there was a much sure, more. Sure. Was in a, 19, right? But even since then, you know the the. U.S. government itself says that there's more threat of people being harmed by white nationalists or um, or extremists. Well, now there's, it's interesting that, that that has changed, and even the so the Trump even DHS under Trump is saying this now. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Ray just testified like he didn't say right wing extremists. He was actually very careful when he said he said that uh, racial because I, obviously this all had to be cleared by DOJ. But he said you know essentially racially uh, ideological t- terrorists. Uh, are, are equal threat to jihad, and he sort of elevated it at the Bureau. Now, there are black nationalist uh, inspired terrorists now who are killing people, because in New America, where I work, we track this. 
There are also ideological misogynists who are killing women. Yeah, incels, involuntary incels, celibates yeah. you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and so, I mean, these are relatively small numbers, but the right-wing extremists uh, and the jihadis are about the same in terms of their lethal effects. And so even though Trump won't acknowledge it, his, his, the, the deep state, <laughs> yeah, a.k.a. professional civil servants, are, are you know, doing their jobs. So uh, can you comment on um, sort of the relationship, as you see it historically, between other presidents with military experience and some of these generals, since you are a student of history and all things? Well, you know, I mean, Harry Truman was a haberdasher, and he was, you know, people thought he'd be terrible. And then he turned out to sort of be instrumental in essentially setting up the architecture, which allowed us to win the Cold War. So you're right. I mean, you don't need... I don't know what Truman's military experience was. I assume he must have served because it was World War II and it was right. a draft, and I don't know what level he served at. Um, Ronald Reagan thought that he served in World War II or told people that, but it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> he served in Hollywood. Uh, Grant was a disaster and Eisenhower was a success. Well, that's, yeah, so, so, yeah, so it's not a prerequisite at all. And, uh, I mean, Obama hadn't served, obviously. And in fact, the interesting thing about Obama is he was the first president in decades who hadn't either served in Vietnam or avoided service in Vietnam, right? So it was not, it was, was like too a... Young. It was, was a, non, a factor it, yeah. of his age, yeah. yeah. so it was like a non-issue for him. And, and so when people kept talking, like Rick Dick Holbrook would talk about Vietnam and these meetings about the Afghan war with Obama, it was like, and, you know, Ben Rhodes and like Samantha, I mean, they were like, for them, this is like the Middle Ages, right? They didn't, they just thought it was a not a relevant discussion for Afghanistan. Uh, and and uh, merely serving the military doesn't mean you're going to be a military genius, right? I mean, but I think he, he, did, he did need these people early on to help him understand how the levers of power work, particularly when it came to the campaign against ISIS, which was right in the middle of the campaign. You know, Mattis and he met at Bedminster in New Jersey, and they agreed on immediately on like we're going to annihilate ISIS, which is not a term of military doctrine necessarily, but like everybody got it. And then they disagreed about two very important things. One was about torture, and Mattis said, you know, you can get more out of somebody with a cigarette and coffee. It was reported at the time cigarette and alcohol, which makes no sense because <laughs> jihadi terrorists are unlikely to be sitting down for a beer. Um, and then also NATO, and he said, look, I mean. When Mattis came into office, the first thing he did was he called the British and the Canadians and said, you know, we have your back and stuff. So they certainly disagreed on these issues. Well, one of the things you talk about in the book is um, how uh, President Trump hasn't had uh, a lot, a a major, a major crisis. He Um, has not. He has not. Uh, you know, this Soleimani thing, like, it looked like it could become a major crisis if the Iranians, and we now know that 104 American servicemen and women have um, brain injuries. So it wasn't without casualties as initially presented. Uh, and, you know, the Iranian thing may still blow up in some way, but he hasn't had a crisis. He's been lucky in that sense. And, and the Iranian crisis, you can say, was somewhat self-created in the sense that he pulled out of the deal. He took a shot at Soleimani. But by the law of average, the coronavirus is the crisis that could become the crisis. I mean, this is a, this has a, the potential of being a 9-11 style event. Um, and, you know, about the same number of American soldiers died as a result of the swine flu at the end of World War One than, than died in Vietnam. So 56,000 American soldiers died in Vietnam, something like 40,000. 45,000 American soldiers died of swine flu. 700,000 Americans died of swine flu. 
and 50 million people around the world. So it, don't, it doesn't have to be anything like of that scale. But if it, yeah, let's say it's, you know, the, we've had flu epidemics in the 50s that killed a lot of people. If it was something like that, I mean, this is really a problem. Well, the, another thing that is uh, kind of in the same vein as this is in the book you point out that, um, you know, because the effects of a particular foreign policy decision aren't felt immediately, that, you know, people yeah. in the White House walk around saying that was a big nothing burger. But some of these things... Oh, they mount up over a time. long time. Well, that's a good... Th- thank you for reading the book well, so carefully. Well, the... the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was going to interview you today, so... <laughs> uh, that, yeah, that's a, it was a big nothing burger. So that was... Yeah, so their reaction if, like, we move the embassy to Jerusalem, like, nothing exactly. really happens. But, like, you, but I think you're right. I mean, like, over time, the, I mean, we are... We are, it, it, the, the, the two-state solution is dead as a doornail. So if the intent was actually to always kill it, that's what they've succeeded oh, in doing, right. rather than actually producing a real peace kind of like and so the intent i mean they they have killed the possibility almost probably uh, certainly the united states being seen as a fair player here uh and you know, over time things do have long-term consequences I, I i agree and i think to your point i think we're dealing with cultures that think long-term and we don't you know yeah. we think quarterly ref- quarterly profits yeah. tweets um, you know, they have a sense of their ancient history and a long-term future perspective. So I don't think we have any idea how Iran is ultimately going to react or Iraq yeah. or, or, frankly, anybody. But that's true because the Chinese also play the very, very long game. 50-year plans, right? Absolutely. As opposed to just well, they, I mean, the, the, All of them are playing a short-term plan now, which is hoping that Trump will be defeated. Right. This is what the Chinese are hoping. This is what the Iranians are hoping. They're just hoping for a new administration. To wait him out. To, yeah, yeah. Wait I mean, him out so that they, right now, the Iranians aren't going to do anything until after this, this election. Chinese are like, yeah, they're just going to wait. Well, th- there are a lot of um, disconnects between the way that Americans conduct foreign policy and the way that other countries. I hundred percent agree because we keep saying we're leaving. We've got a very short time view and. It's very much amplified by this administration. Um, I think it's been true. Like Obama said, we're going to surge and we're going to withdraw. He said in the same speech. You know, so it's so like these are mixed messages. And, and I, you know, Americans are uncomfortable with being in places for a long time and learning the languages and sort of actually doing the things that were acquired. And that's, that, that's you know, both Republicans and Democrats. That's true. Okay. Well, I think... This has been awesome. I really enjoyed the book, and I'm oh, hoping you're going to so. write another one. Um, yeah. Very we soon. look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and let me just say for our listeners too that we're going to hyperlink basically all of Peter's books. Um, they're all incredibly well written, and they bring to life facts and context better than almost any contemporary writer. Um, they're also fun. I, I think you know sometimes people can write facts and deliver facts, and then there are other people who do it with a degree of skill that's very okay. different. Okay, well, thank so we you. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on the show. So thank you for joining us tonight, Peter. Um, It's been a pleasure. And you can find links to the Black Letter Law articles and books that we've talked about today at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. We'll be back next week with more content for you. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook. We welcome your feedback. See you next time on National Security Law Today. Unless you think we let you off the hook without a legal disclaimer, the attorneys hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. The views expressed on National Security Law Today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.